I can make my own living just as well as he can make his. He ought to be glad I'm working. Just because he can't stand competition, he wants me to quit. My work isn't important enough. I'm only a woman. But he, the man, is boss. He'd like me to be a slave to the house. Look at this mess. Starting a business now is increasingly just slowly getting harder and harder because, and I'm doing this because I want to start an Etsy because money and graduating in a pandemic sucks. Like Etsy has ridiculous fee prices. Like just uploading a picture is like 20 cents. And I've realized this for like all these other accounts. There are just so many different fees. But then when I was talking to like my dad and like older generation family members, they're like, start a business, have an idea and like create something. And I'm like, do you guys like not understand how difficult that is? Well, like, you I don't need money how- to make ideas. Yeah. Like I have yeah. plenty of business worthy ideas and I always like sit at the dinner table and joke that someone should give me like x amount of dollars because I've researched how much my new idea is gonna cost (laughs) but no one ever takes me seriously and they're like what is this your 35th business idea this year but like compostable dog toys fantastic idea oh I love that idea all it would take me is a grand to get that off the ground so anyone wants to invest but guess what I don't have a grand (laughs) Well, I, I'm using my savings account for this. Ooh. Like I've invested like a grand or so and it's taken way longer. Like I've been thinking about this like for the whole pandemic, like since May and with moving, that was kind of like a shit show. And obviously like school comes first, but I'm at the point where now I'm just like making stuff and I have to do like another order for shipping like candle materials, it's a hundred dollars for shipping. But yeah, I like making stuff. I'm a crafty bitch. This modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women. Hello and welcome to Lady History, the good, the bad, and the ugly ladies you missed in history class. In the Zoom meeting today, as always, is Lexi. Lexi, which of your business ideas do you think is the most sustainable? My most sustainable business idea is to 3D print dog toys out of corn that if the dog buries them in the yard or destroys them and you need to get rid of them, they are compostable. Because one of the biggest struggles about being a pet owner is that At least for my bird, a lot of the toys are very made of natural materials, and so I don't feel bad throwing out the broken pieces. But dog toys are made of not good stuff. And it's the other constant in my life, Haley. Haley, what would you do with a million dollars? I would have a dog. Dogs don't cost a million dollars, but like... (laughs) You could spoil a dog and you You could could spoil a dog a million dollars, yeah. And I'm Alana, and I can't eat the rich because pig isn't kosher. In terms of women starting businesses, I was thinking if if lady history doesn't work out, if we never make real money, our business plan can How be- dare you? We have made $6. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but like, if we need real money and, and all museums stop existing because of the Rona, we could open a bake shop called- Sprinkle Bear McPuss and Boots' Bakery. 
<laughs> I love it. I'm down. You know, that's like always been my dream is to have a bakery, but part of the bakery, like really, I really, there's a place near me. I think you would really like, you probably couldn't eat anything there. Well, maybe you could eat like the savory stuff, but um, it's called Sweet Memories. And the first floor is a tiny little restaurant that serves soup and gourmet grilled cheese and has baked goods. But the that's upstairs is a little craft store where they sell locally made handmade stuff. And that is kind of how I envision Sprinkle Bear McPuss's Boots's so big shop. That's today. exactly what I wanted. I wanted to be a chef growing up. And I would, that's how I like bake all my cookies and everything. Uh, all egg substitutes but I always hated when people tried to make like restaurants so freaking elaborate like where they have and I'm not talking diners diners are perfection and like the gross greasy diner give that to me anytime Mm, I know that's frozen I don't want to go to a cafe where like the list of crap you can get is longer than like my shoe size I have small feet okay fine I have really (laughs) small feet so like let me rephrase that Longer than Robert's shoe size. <laughs> hey, hey. Um, oh, no. a dick joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> Longer than my wand. My bakery has to have a menu that's like very limited. So again, soups. I love soups and sandwiches. Like you have I mean, your grilled it's literally cheese. gourmet grilled cheese and like yep. all kinds of soups. Your soups and like you always have like the tomato. You always have broccoli cheddar. And you always have chili and then like one seasonal thing. have a pumpkin wild mushroom seasonal soup. Amazing. That sounds so great. And then for the bakery stuff, it's stuff that like you can eat right there. Like a croissant would be excellent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cookies would be excellent. But also just like you could special order like a pie or cake. Yes. And then one part of it is like a library type situation. Not necessarily bookstore, but just like all my books. I have over 200 books. Of course, I could spare a few books. So you could sit there, read, do a chit chat. It's like those books at Gelman that are like, you can't take them out, but you can yeah. read them there on yeah. reserve or whatever it's called. Yes. And then lastly, have stuff like packaged because like hostess gifts. I am the queen of bringing a hostess gift. Mm-hmm. There have been moments where I've forgotten and that's why I've made up with it of just being really elaborate over mm-hmm. the top now. So if like you need a serving dish for the cookies you're going to buy from my place, of course I have some ivory porcelain cooking dish, like serving dishes. You want like a Haley inspired Dutch oven? You damn skippy, you're going to have it in three colors. So I guess the final verdict is Sprinkle Bear McPuss and Boots Bake Shop will be an egg-free, small menu, gift shop, library, eatery experience. Absolutely. I love it. For my businesswoman, I'm covering yet another lady from the Women Extra and Ordinary project that I did with the Smithsonian Libraries. I feel like this is going to get real old real fast, how many of these women I'm covering. But you know what? I already did the research. 
So today I'm going to talk about Eleanor Eldridge, who lived in Rhode Island and was born approximately in March 1785. Her father, Robin Eldridge, was a formerly enslaved person who fought in the American Revolution in exchange for his freedom. Her mother, Hannah Prophet, was a Native American who died when Eleanor was 10 years old. Eleanor was one of nine siblings. After her mother's death, an aunt suggested Eleanor never get married, and Eleanor began working as a servant. While working, Eleanor became skilled in weaving, spinning, paper and soap making, wallpapering, cheese making, and dairy working. And to keep her living costs down, she exchanged housework for boarding so that she wouldn't have to pay rent. And through her skills and smart planning, she was able to expand her money-making ventures, performing various tasks to earn money. Eleanor was naturally gifted as a businesswoman, and once she succeeded in saving up a large sum of money, she began investing in property, which is a pretty good business move. She was also able to take out a mortgage to further her investments, and this was an extremely unique position for a woman of color living in Rhode Island at the time that she lived, so she took advantage of her own savvy and did something really unique and awesome. She built a home on the property she bought with a space that she could rent out. So like think modern duplex, but this is the early 1800s and your landlord living next door is a badass businesswoman. <laughs> so I, I wouldn't mind her as my landlord, but Eleanor's aunt was right to advise Eleanor to never get married because at the time women could not own property in their own name if they were married. So married women could only hold property in shared ownership with their husbands or after their husband's death. So Eleanor was smart to not get married because it would have meant that her husband would control the property that she had acquired through her own hard work. So by staying single, she kept her business interests in her own name, which is really good. When Eleanor fell ill in her 40s, she went to stay with her family to recover from her sickness and after becoming well, she had to travel to assist another ill relative who was suffering from cholera. And because many people in her hometown thought she was gone for a really long time, they believed that she died. And a disagreement surrounding the loan that she'd taken out, the mortgage, it led to Eleanor having her property holdings wrongfully taken from her. And she decided to take legal action in 1837. She became the first Black woman in America to plead her case in court. And despite overwhelming evidence... I look pretty good for a dead bitch. <laughs> despite overwhelming evidence, including three male witnesses, a corrupt sheriff testified against her. And his testimony was enough for the judge to rule against her. And after spending years working and growing her business, Eleanor lost everything. But Eleanor did not give up. A strong-willed woman, she pursued a settlement out of court, which allowed her to repurchase her property, but she was still short on funds to pay the fee that she needed to pay to recover the property. So she had a big brain plan, like the big brain businesswoman she was, to help her cause. Eleanor, who was illiterate, enlisted the help of a ghostwriter, abolitionist Francis Harriet Whipple Green, and Green transcribed Eleanor's life story into a memoir. And the sales of the memoir helped Eleanor repurchase her lost property. And you can read the book by accessing a digital scan on the Smithsonian Library website if you are so inclined to read it. The terminology is a little dated and it's a little hard to read if you speak modern English. But if you're curious for 
a first-hand account because even though it was physically written by um, Francis, it was told by Eleanor. So it's a really unique story. And the book is in the public domain, but if you're so inclined that you're just like, this is really cool, you can actually purchase a physical copy and have it if you would like to. Eleanor's memoirs include this quote, which I really think sums up her whole situation quite well, so I'm just going to read it in her words. No man would have been treated so, and if a white woman had been subjected to, of such wrongs, the whole town, nay the whole country, would have been indignant, and the actors would have been held up to the contempt they deserve. Newspaper editors would have copied and commented on it till every spirit of honor, of justice, and chivalry would have been roused. So I think that says a lot about the situation that she was in and how she felt about it and how precarious the whole thing was. The fact that if it had happened to a guy or even to a white woman, it would have not gone down the same way it did. So at the time of her death, Eleanor had recovered most of what she lost and regained most of her property and money. And her story is regarded by scholars today as an important, unique account of the story of a black woman in early America pursuing her own career. In a time when many black stories were lost, Eleanor's was saved and today she can continue to tell her story through her book. When not closed for COVID-19, the Rhode Island Historical Society has a walking tour. It's about Eleanor and other Black Rhode Islanders from early America. So it stops at a couple locations in the city to share their stories. And the Historical Society also presents a one-woman reenactment of Eleanor's trial called No Man Ever Would Have Been Treated So, The Trials of Eleanor Eldridge, which can be booked as an educational event for groups and clubs. It's pretty cool. And the actress who does it seems really cool. So Google it. Um, one of the links actually in the Tumblr sources that I am sharing is a video where the actress talks about her experience and a couple other things related to womanhood. So if you're curious about that kind of stuff, go watch it. I hate that you've now done two Rhode Island ladies and I've been to Rhode Island and telling me about all these cool things to do in Rhode Island. And I didn't do any of them because I was like 11. And They'll go to Rhode Island again. Lady history field trip to go see that play. Hey, maybe she could do the play and then we could do a live episode about other famous Rhode Island ladies. That would be fantastic. Man manifest it. Say it on the pod. Makes it happen. Live show at the Rhode Island Historical Society about Rhode Island ladies. <laughs> gal today is Madam C.J. Walker, or by Guinness Book of World Records, the first female self-made millionaire in America. And before we get to that point, this history book starts at her childhood. Born on a plantation in Delta, Louisiana, Sarah Breedlove was one of six children to Owen and Minerva Anderson Breedlove. I love the name Minerva. Owen and Minerva Anderson Breedlove, former slaves turned sharecroppers. And that was a quote that like, I don't, 
I don't like that that's how it's phrased. Like former slaves turned sharecroppers is exactly what happened. My problem is like in the sentence I kept reading it, it's like, oh, but they're sharecroppers now. It's like, no, they're not like- It's like still bad. (laughs) Yeah, it's still bad. Like blah, blah, it's still bad. And this is post- It's not even bad to less bad. It's bad to different bad. Yeah, it hits differently. And this is like all post-Civil War. And I even put in my notes, like this quote is weird. Unfortunately, her parents died when she was seven and Madam CJ moved in with her sister who worked in the cotton fields. And at age 14, she married Moses McWilliams. And this was partly to get away from her abusive brother-in-law because already we're off to a rocky start. If like your footnote is to get away from an abusive person, maybe there was love. I couldn't find much about Moses. Um, Again, life was just not on Madam CJ's side and her husband died in 1887. And she had to raise their two-year-old daughter, Layla, known as Alayla. She moved to St. Louis with the hope of a better life and not just like living in poverty, getting out of that poverty um, situation because like, yeah, absolutely. She wanted, and she was very adamant on making better life for herself and her daughter and knowing that she could do it as a woman not just like having that uh widow title slapped on her um because we know even now still if you're a widow that's kind of like your identity or personality it's like oh your partner died and kind of the same with men like raising children and that's not what we want here so in st louis her four brothers were barbers and she worked both as a laundress and a cook. She also joined the African Methodist Episcopal Church where she met black men and women who were both educated and successful. And this was kind of like an inspirational moment for her. This was a pivotal moment that she and my research just kept going back to. She went through a bit more of a life struggle with a failed marriage and just more financial ups and downs which would make anyone physically and mentally strained. However, in 1904, she began using African-American businesswoman Annie Turbo Malone's great, wonderful hair grower because she was starting to see like just prop, like scalp problems um, were concluded into like hair loss. And I'll explain more of that because I had to do some more research myself. She also joined Malone's team of Black women sales agents, and this is where she starts to become one of those successful independent people she previously admired. And I believe this is around the time Layla actually went to, like, university, so that was a big yay. I also would like to pause, like I said, to do some research about hair care products because all hair is different. And these products, especially that Madam CJ later invents, were for Black women who lost their hair to scalp disorders, or most likely a form of alopecia, like relatively common, and Madam CJ had it too. And that is not to say that hair loss just comes from scalp disorders. Like I get hair loss when I use certain rubber bands because I have really thick, coily hair that will break off at the end. Apparently my hair type is prone to like stress falling out. After some time in the business field, and I believe this was just like about a year, she moved to Denver where she married, quote, ad man, 
Charles Joseph Walker, hence the new name of Madam C.J. Walker. And this is important in the business sense of her life because she started out with $1.25. And yes, this was way, way back ago. But in the sense of building like a business that was launching her career to be a self-made millionaire, that's a little bit of dough. And she was able to launch Madam Walker's wonderful hair grower, which her husband, the ad man, helped advertise and getting like mail order business started. Because remember, we did not have the lovely internet. Um, so that was a huge chunk of the business to get like revenue, um, get the word out there and such. And she knew that there was a market here because once she was in that market and she just previously worked in that market. So she could easily tap into it. And as a black woman, she knew how to essentially not only market, but just be like, here's how you use it. So unfortunately, this marriage ended in a divorce and she later moved to Indianapolis. And in 1910, she built a factory for her company now named Walker Manufacturing Company. And this transformation made it possible for her to become an advocate for Black women, especially in the like economic independence realm. Um, with Walker Manufacturing Company, she could branch out, do a lot more. And she opened up a training program called the Walker System. And basically this huge network of licensed sales agents blossomed and this led back into her core ideals of giving back and being very generous because she believed that she had generous opportunities given to her. So now she needed to give back and she remembered what it was like to be that person on the poverty line, being inspired by these wealthy, educated, successful people. She ended up employing 40,000 black women and men in the United States, Central America and the Caribbean. I couldn't find out if this was specifically one part of her business or like the whole network or other endeavors because she also had a cosmetics branch called the National Negro Cosmetics Manufacturers Association that she also started. Regardless, 40,000 people for many different spans of land is a lot. And her worth in all senses of the word just kept growing and growing. Financially, in the last year of her life, she reached that $1 million worth with her sales exceeding $500,000. And some reports saying that at her death, her value of remaining estate was more like 600000 which is about $8 million today. Just like, what Alana asked, what would I do with a million? Maybe a house. Like now thinking of it. Because one of her things she spent her money on was a mansion named Villa Luaro, which was a 5.5 acre plot in Irvington, New York. And I think I might have to do like a drive-by field trip. I know where Irvington, New York is. And by looking at the street name, when I was like Googling all this, I think I know exactly where it is. This was also for Madam CJ to be closer to her daughter at this point. And at the end of this, like all happy and sad, Madam CJ continued her avid philanthropy until her death from kidney failure by bequeathing two thirds of her future net profits to charities and thousands of dollars to different schools and individuals. There is a Netflix special that's out. I have not watched it yet, 
I thought of Stone Production, Lexi was the kind, beautiful soul to send me an email. Lexi, have you watched it? And can you give us a review? I watched it. Since I didn't dive as deep into research on her as you did, I'm not sure how accurate it is because there were, you know, little stories you didn't cover because this is like, it's not just one movie. It's like a multi-part series. So I guess my curiosity, maybe after you watch it, you can tell us how accurate it was. But from an entertainment standpoint, it was really good. <laughs> this is going to be like once I'm done with like writing my thesis and everything. Treat I'm yourself. And be like, this is amazing. Yeah, it was like, in terms of entertainment value, it was a really amazing woman focused story which I've seen the previews because I knew it was coming out and I really thought it was still in production or it was like postponed because La Rona those looked fabulous so I initially found out about my lady from Drunk History which is classic me it's one of my favorite shows I am I have said on this podcast before that I was devastated when it was canceled I'm still devastated I don't think I'll ever be over that loss in my life but then in researching this lady I found out that very little of the drunk history story is accurate and so that broke my heart and I'm glad I followed up with some research and wasn't just like using drunk history as a source because I don't think that's a good idea okay so Mary Ellen Pleasant was born no one really knows when, so I can't tell you her star sign, but in 1814-ish. One of my sources said August 19th, 1814, which would make her a Leo, and I definitely can see her as a fire sign. Uh, she wrote three autobiographies, and every single one gives a different birth date and even year. And also, no one even really knows where she was born. It's possible she was born free in Philadelphia or into slavery in Georgia, Who knows? Only Mary Ellen, and she's dead. She spent her early life in Nantucket, Massachusetts, where she was indentured to a family of abolitionists. Insert lady doing equations meme. The, I, what? I don't understand how abolitionists own slaves. Like Alexander Hamilton owned slaves. What's his name? His lover? I haven't watched Hamilton in so long. Oh, John Lawrence. (laughs) also owned slaves yes but they were like but slavery bad but we own slave i forgot where i was oh i was at my insert lady doing equations meme because abolitionists who own people make me confused uh eventually she was married to a man named james henry smith who was either white or biracial or mixed race and he was an abolitionist as well but also a plantation owner and that's one of those things that i am big old question mark So the two of them as a couple gave a lot of money to the abolitionist movement because they had a lot of money from owning a plantation that I think meant they also owned people, which I I am so confused. But James Smith died in the early 1840s and left her a lot of money, some of which she invested and some of which she kept giving away to the cause, the cause of abolition. She got remarried to John Pleasant, and they moved to San Francisco to avoid slavers. So formerly a local lady for Haley, even though she doesn't live in San Francisco anymore. I'm not sure what happened to him. He is never mentioned again besides she moved with him to San Francisco. 
Mary Ellen became business partners with a man named Thomas Bell. It's possible they were romantically involved, but Mary Ellen like found a wife for him. So I don't think so. But anyway, they amassed $30 million. Thruple? Thruple, maybe. Thruple. I don't know. Together, they amassed $30 million in back then money, which is almost a billion dollars today. In the 1890 census, she listed her profession as capitalist, which is like so on the nose, and I love it. She owned laundries and restaurants and dairies and all of these other things. She even owned a Wells Fargo. And she hired Black people, especially Black people who had escaped slavery, to work in them, which gave them opportunities that they probably wouldn't have had otherwise. And this is where she gets the nickname. She starts to get the nickname, the mother of civil rights in California. She was a light-skinned Black woman, so she could have been white passing, and she did. Uh, until a census taken after she had gotten kind of successful and amassed all this wealth. She wrote in that she was Black instead of white. She also, furthering her title of mother of civil rights in California, uh, she sued a cable car company for not allowing Black people on at all, setting the stage for Rosa Parks to be even allowed on the bus in the first place to refuse to give up her seat. She won several other lawsuits regarding racial discrimination in the 1860s and 70s, And she starts getting notorious among white people, obviously, because powerful Black women make white people uncomfortable. That's just a fact. And so people started calling her Mammy Pleasant, which she hated so much, which because they were like using it derogatorily. Um, Apparently, a pastor in Sacramento wrote her a letter addressed to Mammy Pleasant asking for something. And she wrote back to him on the same piece of paper because she didn't want to waste her own on him big dick energy that's a power move it's right a power there. move that's it like absolutely is a power like move. best regards on an email yeah jumping back in time a little bit uh in 1859 the abolitionist john brown led a raid on harper's ferry this is a pretty famous event he got caught and he was hanged and they found a note in his pocket that basically said here's what i gave you thirty thousand dollars to do regards to the raid And it's signed, but there's a case of mistaken identity. So no one actually knows who did it, except on her deathbed, Mary Ellen confessed to it being her. She pulled the whole, tell Cersei, I want her to know it was me. And her gravestone reads, friend of John Brown, because she was. After Thomas Bell died, his widow sued Mary Ellen and she lost almost everything. So there was some falling out there that something happened. It's also possible she studied voodoo, like the actual voodoo, like the Haitian voodoo, not like the garbage touristy shit, from Marie Laveau herself, who I'm hoping maybe we'll cover at some point. I think Marie Laveau is really cool. Um, But that's one of those things that like she said and can't really be corroborated, even against Mary Ellen's own stories. I think it's possible that that's just like something she said to scare the white people even further. Um, there's a park in San Francisco named after her. Haley, did you ever go? I feel like I do in the sense I know the plot of land or like general area. Does, is it in Golden Gate? Because Golden Gate so. Park has like a bunch of little pockets. Where... No, it's on the corner. It's on the corners of some streets. Anyway, there's a park in San Francisco and she haunts it. And she um, has been I known to. That. I really, I would have gone. I know. 
Yeah, uh, she throws eucalyptus nuts at people. Supposedly, I think that's cool. That's what I would do. And she used her position to make a better life for herself and better the lives of others and used her capabilities. And she had, she was such a smart woman and so capable and so manipulative, but in a good way. She knew what people were thinking and could use that to her advantage and not just to her own advantage, to the advantage of the people in her community who she really helped. And the best quote from her is, I'd rather be a corpse than a coward. And that's what makes me think she's a fire sign. You can find this podcast on Twitter and Instagram at LadyHistoryPod. Our show notes and a transcript of this episode will be on LadyHistoryPod.tumblr.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or tell your friends. And if you don't like the show, keep it to yourself. Our logo is by Alexia Ibarra. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at LexiBDraws. Our theme music is by me, GarageBand, and Amelia Earhart. Lexi is doing the editing. You will not see us, and we will not see you, but you will hear us next time on Lady History. Next week on Lady History, we're diving into some misconceptions, retelling the stories that should have been told the first time. ever wonder what happened to those bands that wrote one great song then disappeared forever but you don't really care enough to do your own research about it well we've got you covered each week on one hit no wonder nolan and matt that's me take two artists who wrote one great song each compare the artists next most popular songs and make them fight to the death in order to decide which is more truly deserving of the title one hit wonder for all we know chumbawamba was the greatest band of a generation but no one bothered to listen to their other music to find out on this show, we'll do that listening for you. And you can start adding more Sir Mix-A-Lot to your playlists besides Baby Got Back. You can find One Hit No Wonder every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.